This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And today's going to be an interesting show because this has been a really frustrating week. I have seen so much bullcrap going on in your country and around the world. And the response has literally, I'm not joking, has made me want to blow a gasket. I normally come before this microphone very measured. I try and I work really hard behind the scenes of the show. I'm always thinking of what can I say to you? How can I be calm? How can I be reasoned? How can I be logical? How can I present the best case to you? Today I'm struggling, I'm not going to lie to you, because we have so much to discuss, so much important issues. And I want to talk to you both the left and the right in your country. Now, what do I want to talk about? I could talk about the uh, the child abuse video I saw, which is going viral. And if you dare criticize this, where a guy is literally now a girl and the guy girl is now a guy, and literally the guy is shoving his nipple and trying to breastfeed a kid, even though he doesn't have milk ducts. I could talk about that, but we're not going to. I could talk about CPAC. We might mention CPAC briefly in the next segment, but I don't really want to talk politics. I want to talk to you about what's going on at a bigger scale, because right now you have been set up. If you believe in any definition of liberty, in any definition of freedom, you've been set up. And the the big master plan for the left to, to smear you, to destroy you is in. And I want to give you just the first glimpse of what's happening. And then I want to speak to my friends on the left. And I want to do it in a reasonable way. What you are being set up this for is if you dare criticize your government right now, and this is not an American thing. I think sometimes Americans are a bit maybe ignorant or arrogant, or you can fill in the adjective that makes you think, oh, all these bad things are only happening in America. That it's just the left in America, John. It's not. I'm dealing with this all my life. It's very much, it's in America, it's in England, it's in Europe. And you've started to see this now where, oh, oh, are you, are you one of those anti-government, you know, conspiracy people? Are you one of those, oh my God, oh, dare I say it? I, I don't even dare to besmirch my mouth by saying this, but are you an anti-vaxxer? If you dare attack uh, Fauci, if you dare attack the CDC, if you dare attack your government, oh, 
Oh my God, are you, are you anti-government? Oh, are you not so proud of your government? Really? I don't believe if you listen to this show for a week or a month or seven years that I've been on the place, you know, I don't do the binary choice arguments. I don't get in the whole, you know, left versus right, good versus evil, or even the whole anti-government or pro-government side. I believe in making the case pros and cons of either side or either to the base. Sometimes one side has more cons than the other, and sometimes another side is more evil than the other, but I make the case based on logic. However, if you put a gun to my head and said, hey, John, what side are you on? Are you on the anti-government side or the pro-government side? Just those two. I can't give you an option B. I'm going to make the argument why it is pretty cool and logical and reasonable to be anti-government. Now, I could talk to you about world history. I could talk to you about Adolf Hitler and how everything Adolf Hitler did that was legal. He did nothing illegal and he killed six million people. Sure, I could talk to you about Stalin and how he murdered pretty much nine million people. Or I could talk to you about the granddaddy of them all, you know, Mao, who killed up to 45 million people. But this is not to my friends on the right. This is to my friends on the left, because I know you might be sympathetic towards them. You might be like, well, look, you know, Hitler, we can agree on this bad, but Stalin, he was misunderstood. Or Mao... You know, look, the Great Leap Forward had some pros to it. It wasn't all bad. If you're thinking like that, I'm not going to talk to you about those three. What I'm actually going to do is talk to you in your own language and make the anti-government case. Are you ready? What is your language? Well, I hear so often, and it pisses me off quite blunt. Apologies for anyone who has kids listening. But I have to say it the way I feel it today. I'm in a mood. I hear this, I hate America. America is systematically racist. America is so bad, it has such an evil extent. History. If only we could just remove America, the world would all be cupcakes and roses, and we'd all sing Kumbaya, because America is the great Satan. Well, allow me, if I may today, just a few minutes to talk to you about American history the way you will appreciate. And then let's see if we can come to some, oh, I don't know, some conclusions, shall we? There is many places I could start, but you know what? Let's start with this one, because this one should appeal to all my friends on the left, if you don't think too hard. It's December 29th, 1890. Hmm, what happened on December 29th, 1890? Well, gee, John, that sounds about Christmas time, doesn't it? Well, this wouldn't be anything Christmas. This isn't Father Christmas or a white man who's fat and jolly going down your chimney giving you presents. This has nothing to do with it. This is the opposite of fat and jolly. This is really cruel and miserable. What happens? Well, if you go back to December 29th, 1890 and go to South Dakota, and not just any part of South Dakota, the Dakota Pine Ridge of Indian Reserve, South Dakota. So what happened there? Well, there's a long history here, and there's a long story. If you want to go research it, Google the Battle of the Wounded Knee. You'll find more about it. But I'm just going to surmise what happened. Basically, you had the white man, and you had an Indian tribe. And the army is sent in to disarm this tribe. And they go in on December 29th, 1890. And as history tells us, there's a man there, and his name is Black Coyote. And this man is deaf. And as he's been told in some way, you have to give up your gun. He's like, no. 
and he makes the moral argument. This is this is an outrageous argument to make today. I don't know how what moral or principle he's he's talking about, but he said, "I paid for it. I'm not giving it up." I wonder what first principle that could be. Hmm. Oh, if only that was something along the lines of your racist family fathers. Oh, yes. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. But let's just move on. You know, the founders are racist. At the same time, this man is, you know, saying, no, I paid for this. I'm not giving it up. There's an old man performing a ritual called the ghost dance. And between somewhere between this man refusing to give it up and this ghost dance, the black coyote who's deaf accidentally discharges the rifle. And what was the response? Well, the army murdered them all. Or not murdered them all, like, you know, let's not, you know, pick and choose here. They murdered 250 of them, but, you know, only 51 were wounded. And in case you're wondering, well, why didn't they fight back? Well, because they'd given up all their guns. Now, if you're on the left, I want to talk to you. Just put aside the Second Amendment and the God-given right to protect yourself from a, oh, I don't know, what was it? What was the Founding Fathers' biggest fear? Oh, yes, governments. But let's just not focus in on that for a minute. Let's just focus in on, you know, evil, racist America. 250 dead Native Americans. That's the first story. Now, let's just put a pin in that, shall we, for a second. Let me tell you another story. Oh, I don't know. What other story could I talk to you about? Oh, yes, Dred Scott. Do you know who Dred Scott is? Dred Scott is an African-American man. And you might have heard that name. It might sound familiar to you. But in case you don't know, he was part of what you would call a rather famous Supreme Court case. It was called Dred Scott versus Sanford. And you see, Dred Scott was an African-American. And he lived with his wife and his kids. And he lived in Illinois and in Wisconsin for the prior four years of his life. And in those states at that time, slavery was illegal. Not only was slavery illegal, but if you had slaveholders in those states... They were forced to give up their rights to fellow human beings. Why would that be? Why would they be forced to? Give? Oh, yes, something about all men are being created equal and endowed by the creator with certain labor. Oh, don't forget that. You know, you know the thing. You know the thing is Joe Biden would say. You know, forget those racist founders. I, I keep going back to them. I apologize. I get sidetracked very easy. But anyway, this case went to the Supreme Court. And Scotus ruled seven to two. Seven to two. That's an overwhelming majority, right? This is not a five, four or six, three decision. Seven to two is pretty clear. The court is not divided. This is slam dunk bam. They ruled in the right way, though, right, John? No, sadly not. You see, the Supreme Court in the decision said in the seven two decision, not five, four, not six, three, seven, two. Not even close. You know, wave the white flag, it's that far apart. That no African American could claim citizenship could claim citizenship, and therefore Dred Scott did not have standing to file a suit in the court and thus the Supreme Court. So basically seven to do. Ah, yeah, you know what? That's slavery and different things. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just, yeah, go away. Then I could talk to you. Let's just put a pin on that story for a second. Then I could give you the real quick story of, you know, oh, I don't know, the person who you don't like very much anymore because you've totally bastardized everything you said for Martin Luther King. Hmm, what did Martin Luther King do? What Martin Luther King story could I talk to you about? Racist founding America been bad. Oh, yes. The time where he was walking arm in arm in Selma, where he was doing all these peaceful protests. You know, he wasn't looting up stores. You know, not like Black Lives Matter in some places today. Like actually literally walking peacefully and making the case not against the founders, but about talking about how they had written a check. It was time for America to cash. Talking about 
I have a dream. But not everyone was so, how should we say, happy to hear the words of Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King got a lot of threats. And some of them were from people who were not just threats, but they were detritus. So what does Martin Luther King do? Oh, that's right. He goes and talks about the founding fathers and said, hey, I have this idea. It's, it's the founding fathers. What was that they wrote about? I know they're racist and they're bad people, but what did they? Oh, that's right. The Second Amendment again. I want to have a gun that, God forbid, if one of these detritus people actually become serious and try and take a, you know, make a attempt on my life, I have a God-given right to protect myself. Hey, can I have a gun government? And the FBI and, oh, boy, do I love the FBI. The FBI came back and said, you know what, for your safety, we're not going to we're not going to allow you a gun, but it's for your safety. But then again, let's just put another pin in that story. We're, you know, I just want to make the case for you that you really understand. Then I could talk to you about, oh, I don't know. How about I talk to you about Homer Plessy? Do you know who Homer Plessy is? I know you do because you're on the left and you have all these articulate geniuses like Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And you're so passionate about your history. Yeah, I just say Homer Plessy to you and I guarantee you, you can finish my words, right? Because you're on the left. You're just so smart. Well, in case you don't know, for all the plebs out there, let me just clue in the right wingers, you know, who actually don't know your history. Ha ha, sarcasm. In 1982, Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy is seven-eighths white and one-eighth black. And he lives in New Orleans, that great state of Louisiana. And back in those days, the good old days, oh, I don't know, there was this thing called a whites-only card. And Homer Plessy, been, I don't know, seven-eighths white, decided, you know what, screw that, I'm going to sit in the all-white car. And he was arrested. And he pled not guilty. Why? Because it was a violation of the 14th Amendment. Goes all the way to court, gets goes against them, goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rules in May 1896 on this case, in a famous case called Plessy versus Ferguson, and it wasn't a close call again. You thought 7-1 was lopsided, or sorry, 7-2 was lopsided. Plessy versus Ferguson was even worse. It was 7-1. Again, not close. And what did they rule? Nah, that, that's totally fine. There is no violation of his 14th Amendment rights. But let's put a pin in that, shall we? Let me talk to you about a day that you probably know about. It was really legitimately, everyone can agree on this, one of the darkest days in American history. But we need to talk about it. It was the after events of Pearl Harbor. Now, we all know Pearl Harbor, the Japanese bombing all the ships in the bay. We, we all know the story. But the story after and the aftermath of Pearl Harbor was Korematsu. Now, Korematsu starts after Pearl Harbor because that wonderful progressive left-wing icon called FDR signed an executive order and oh boy guys guys and girls you know me you know listening to this show if there's something that gets me excited and all warm inside it's executive orders i love them i could bathe in them i could just oh i could just give my myself a massage with executive orders i love them that much they are god's greatest gift some might say it's you know the world the atmosphere free choice i say no God's greatest gift is an executive order from the President of the United States because they always are so wonderful. But February 19th, 1942, FDR signs Executive Order 9066. And what does this do? Well, this gives the War Department, it allows them new powers. 
And one of those powers is to create military areas. And on the West Coast, they are so terrified of another invasion that basically what they do is anyone of Japanese descent or anybody of Japanese ancestry, basically you have to relocate. You have to go to this internment camp. Whether you like it or not, whether you're an American or not, whether you're there a long time or a short time, whether you're a first-generation American or a 10th-generation American. I know there was no 10th-generation American. I'm just being facetious. But they all had to go there. Fred Korematsu said, eh, no, I refuse. I am not going to it because it is a violation of my Fifth Amendment rights. Do you see a trend here? Fifth Amendment, Second Amendment. You start seeing things. Oh, but they were all written by racist founders, right? Yeah. Well, in a decision of 5-4, how do you think the Supreme Court rules? Do you think they ruled really good? Do you think they ruled the right way? Or do you think they ruled, oh, I don't know, in the wrong way? They ruled against them. And I want to actually read out the decision for you because it is so apt. Justice Hugo Black, if you think about today, just think about these words. Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him or his race. No, of course not. No, no, that would never happen. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire. Because the properly constituted military authorities feared an invasion of our West Coast and felt constrained to take proper security measures, security measures being the key words, that all Japanese citizens of Japanese heritage ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily and finally because Congress, reposing its confidence in its time of war in our military leaders, determined that they should have the power to do justice. No limits on government. Federalism out of the window. All about Congress. That's what your Supreme Court says. But I'm not done. We'll put a pin in that one for a second. And now where I really annoy my friends on the left. Let's talk about another decision in your history, shall we? You know, your evil, raceless American history. Oh, what should I say? Let's make the last one a goodie, shall we? Let's make it really juicy. Something to get your, your teeth really stuck into. Oh, what, what riles up the, oh yes, let's rile up the left. Let's talk about abortion, shall we? Since that's, I went researching on this, started in 1973. The lowest year of abortions in America was 2017 with 613,000 abortions. Now this is the official figure. We all know this figure is probably a tad higher. Now, since 1973, let's use the lowest figure, shall we, of that many abortions every year. You come to a total of 29.5 million abortions. Oh, woman's right to choose, right? 29.5 million times a woman had a right to choose. Oh, I feel all warm inside, right? Well, let's just do the numbers, shall we? By the way, I use the lowest figure. This figure is actually a lot higher because if you go from the years 1980 to 1997, in case you're thinking, oh, John's height of that number is just to make it sound more dramatic. No, that's using the lowest figure. The years from 1980 to 1997, there was never less than a million. And the record year is 1990 with 1.43 million. If I wanted to be dramatic, I could have said 50 million, 60 million, and I probably wouldn't have been too far off. But let's use the low figure of 29.5 million people. If you do some research, and this is harder to find for certain reasons, you will find that since 1973, roughly 39% of those abortions have been by white women. 8% have been by other 
20% have been by Hispanic, and roughly, give or take, 34% of those abortions have been done by black women. Hmm. Why would I bring up this as a really bad part? Because I know it's a woman's right to choose and all that type of stuff. You see, I get called a racist. Anytime I object to Barack Obama, oh, gee, John, you're just a white man. You have white privilege. Oh, you just are so racist. Really? You follow my policy at the lowest number. 34% of 29.5 million is 10 million black babies. You follow my policy, there's currently roughly 44 million Americans. You follow my policy, there's 54 million Americans. Why would I be racist? If I was so racist, why would I be advocating for 10 million more babies to be alive? And by the way, that figure is a lot higher because it goes back to 1973. You know, those people who would have been safe presumably would have had kids themselves. And presumably a good chunk of them would have been what you call 100% black. They, you know, obviously some people might would have went Asians or Hispanic or white people. But, you know, a good chunk of them. So maybe 15 million more people. Why would I be so racist? If I'm so bad, why would I hate this decision? Let's put a pin in that, shall we? So to recap to my friends on the left, I want to just make this point to you. Evil racist American. The Battle of Wounded Knee, killing Indians. Dred Scott saying you're a slave, you don't have any rights, you don't recognize your citizenship by the Supreme Court. MLK been refused a firearm and the Second Amendment rights by the FBI, a government agency. Plessy versus Ferguson saying, you know what, you didn't violate your 14th Amendment rights by saying by arresting you for riding in a white car, Supreme Court. Korematsu, Supreme Court. Roe versus Wade, Supreme Court and Planned Parenthood, a government-funded organization. Now, if I was to say all this racist stuff and all this bad history of America, if I was to put a common theme in it, what would that theme be? Hmm. Gee, let's think about that. Just let's, let's just ponder it after a second. Hmm. Is it all Americans are racist? No. Is it America's history is all bad? No, because we're only talking about a few stories. Oh, I don't know. There's six stories that involve the government. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, it isn't a good thing to be pro-government no matter what. Maybe, just maybe, I'm not advocating for it to be totally anti-government because, again, I am not anti-government. I am a constitutionalist. I am an anti-government telling you what to do, telling you what to think, and ensuring and mandating you think and act a certain way. But if you have to get into that binary choice... Based on that history, based on world history, you know what? It isn't crazy to be anti-government. In fact, one might make the argument it's entirely logical and reasonable and, I don't know, common sense. So that was to my friends on the left. And now to my friends on the right. We need to have a talk. We need to have a heart-to-heart. And what is that heart-to-heart about? It's about Cuba. And about, more specifically, about your country. And what your country stands for. I don't know how to say this in a nice way, so I'm just going to say it bluntly. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. 
It's time to put the pettiness aside. It's time to put down the, the rhetoric of, oh, you're on this side, or you're the enemy because you don't like Trump, or you don't like the GOP, or you're not libertarian enough. It's time to put all the petty arguments aside and talk about your country. But most importantly, what your country stands for. If you were like me, you watched what happened in Cuba last weekend. And despite Jen Psaki, oh, they, they were just protesting and they were just, you know, it was all spontaneous and it was all, uh, it was all, they were just unhappy with the government's role in COVID. And they're all just frustrated because they're not getting vaccines. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Shut up. That wasn't spontaneous. But also, they're not frustrated with COVID and COVID vaccines. They are frustrated with an authoritarian, big government, progressive, socialist, communist, fill in any adjective that you want, government, telling them everything they can do, what they must do. They're sick of mandates. They're sick of being compelled to say things, act a certain way. They're sick of being told you have a difference of opinion, you're the enemy. They are fed up with their natural rights being trampled. And one of the things some of the protesters did was they went to the protests, they were shouting liberty. They were shouting freedom in Spanish. They were shouting a lot of words. They had the Cuban flag, but they also had the American flag. The reason I say it's time to wake up and it's time to put the pettiness aside is you need to understand your role in this world. Now, I try to say this nicely every week. I try and make this as, you know, humbly as I can to try and remind you of who you are. But it doesn't seem to be working in some cases. So let me tell you just who the hell you are. You are America. You are a country that has changed our worlds. Are you perfect? No. But you have made and contributed to the advancements of mankind that no one has ever seen before. You have changed the world in so many ways. There are so many things we have right now that we take for granted that we have become so spoiled with that we can't imagine what a world looks like without them. And if it wasn't for the idea of America, if it wasn't for this idea of leaving people alone, if it wasn't for the idea of allowing people and an understanding that people have a God-given right to pursue their happiness, if it wasn't for the idea that said, you have a right to pursue your happiness and create a business and innovate and use your imagination. And guess what? If you're successful, you have a God-given right to keep the fruits of your labor. This idea changed the world. This idea that all men are created equal. It changed the world. It changed us. Because look at how we're talking right now. You are listening on an app. If you're the vast majority of people, you're listening on iTunes, 
which means you're listening on an iPhone. You're listening on Spotify. You're listening on iHeartRadio. You're listening on all the other countless platforms we're on. You're listening. Sometimes, chances are, without Wi-Fi, you're listening with 4G or 5G, depending on what your phone has. I'm recording this show 6,000 miles away from you, five hours in time zone, on an app called Zoom. These are things that are not, you know, been around for 5, 10, 20 years. Zoom's been around, what, two, three? iTunes, what's been around, 10, 12, maybe 15 years? These are relatively new. In the history of mankind, these are new advancements. Again, if you're listening on an iPhone, you're listening on something on a device that 30 years ago, if you had thought of it, would have been told you're crazy and probably went to, to the loony bit. That guy's crazy. That girl's crazy. She she needs help. You know, you need to take her rights away and put her in a conservatorship because she's crazy. She loco. That's what we're living in right now. Why is this? The idea of America is about rights. And despite how much this annoys or gets under the skin of my friends on the left, America is an exceptional nation. You're an exceptional nation because there is no other you. Please tell me where if America ceases to exist tomorrow, my dream comes, well, I got to move here. Where is it? Tell me. I'm delighted. I would love to know. Where's my, I don't have an American dream anymore. What? The Irish dream? The Russian dream? The New Zealand dream? The Chinese dream? The Cuban dream? Please tell me. What you don't seem to understand right now is what you're doing and what you don't do And what you talk about and what you don't talk about plays a big role in this world. We need you. We are desperate for your leadership. But not just your leadership as, well, we need a strong president. I'm sure there are people who heard that and went, well, that's why we need Trump back in the White House. I am not talking to you about politics. What we need you to be is the shining city on a hill. What we need you to be is back to founding principles. What we need you to be is to understand the idea of America and start promoting it again and start living it again. Because tyranny is here. It is knocking on our door. Government is here. Their mandates, they can close your business down at a moment's notice. They can close it down for over a year if you're in Ireland. They can force you to wear masks. They can talk about forcing you to take a vaccine. They can compel you. You say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong place, you're screwed. This is government. What we need is freedom. What we need is the idea of America. Because here's the thing. We're in bad times right now. Tyranny is here. The dark clouds are over the horizon. It doesn't look good. If you want to use... You know, more scenario from your family, you know, because you like history. It's cold. It's wet. It's winter. It's snowing. Are you going to be a winter soldier or a sunshine patriot? If I may quote Thomas Paine, this is the time you are made for. As bad as things are right now, we can solve all these problems with the idea of America. But it is the idea of America, not a politician. Not a political party. Because I saw CPAC on last week, and as great as it was to see the great state of Texas, please God, my future home. 
have a great event. And I saw my boss, Glenn Beck, give a great speech. I saw a few speeches, but CPAC, the Conservative Act, Political Action Committee, has had the same problem as had since I was there in 2016 and before us. I heard a lot of grandiose talk from lots of different people, what we need to do to solve America. And you know, they all had a common theme running through them. Whether it was the Republican Party, whether it was Donald Trump, whether it was political commentators or wherever it was. They all had a common theme running through them. It all ran around, we got to win the House, we got to win the Senate, we got to win the White House, and we're going to make America safer again, exceptional again, we're going to make it great again. We're going to make all these things. You know what I didn't hear? You know what I didn't hear at CPAC yet again? The Constitution. The understanding of why America is great. Actually, you're not great. You're exceptional. You're unique. There is no like you. You have no peer. You have no equal. This idea is revolutionary. And it's time you tried it again. Because in those people in Cuba, they were talking about the America I love, the America I defend, the America I promote. That is what they mean to them. They're sure, would they like Republicans over Democrats? Probably. Would they like Trump over a Democrat? Probably. Most likely. I don't know. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. But politics isn't why you're exceptional. And before anyone thinks, oh, there you go, I'm never Trump around again. I am the biggest George Washington fan you will find. I could talk to you all day long about the greatness of George Washington. He is the greatest president in U.S. history in my eyes. Here's the thing. George Washington, as great as he was, as great a president as he was, he was the model in my eyes of what a president should be. Was he perfect? No. Did he make mistakes? Yes. But he was the model. He was the blueprint. George Washington, being all that, and being the first president, still didn't make America exceptional. John Adams didn't make America exceptional. The Whigs didn't make America exceptional. The So Democrats didn't make America exceptional. Lincoln didn't make America exceptional. Calvin Coolidge, as great as he was, didn't make America exceptional. Ronald Reagan, for all his grandiose and all his wonderful speeches, and as much as I love listening to him, he did not make America exceptional. The idea is what made you exceptional. Now, the idea is under attack from our friends on the left. The far left hate America. I based my whole monologue at the start of this show on making the argument of all the bad days in America to try and speak their language. Now, what is the answer? They're telling you they're tearing it down. The founders are racist. America sucks. America, if the world just never had America, the world would be a better place. What is our answer? Is our answer just to get to the right and Donald Trump or ever who your next president is, Thomas Massey or, or Rand Paul or Ron Paul or ever what camp you're in, Ted Cruz, whatever camp. Maybe, maybe you're one of the, I don't know, 1% on the right who thinks, you know what we need right now? We need jab. Woo. Okay, great. That isn't going to make your country exceptional. That isn't going to turn the tide. What's going to turn the tide is the idea. We need to start. And this is not me demeaning you. This is not me telling you. This isn't even me mandating you. This is me on my hands and knees begging with you, pleading with you. Stop. Wake up. Understand the times you live in and start 
promoting your founding principles. Start living your founding principles. Because if you don't, and this is not me being a catastrophist, this is not me doing my best Glenn Beck impression, the world as you know it is dead. We will be consigned to the ash heap of history. We will be consigned to 800 years of darkness. If you don't wake up. Now, I know some of you right now are tired. You're angry. You're pissed off. I got it. But your country has deserved more. Your country deserves you to fight. Because if you think, and I've been talking to you this for the last couple of weeks, if you're tired right now, if you're angry, if you're bitter, if you've fed up and you've had enough, I understand. I feel your pain. You think? Don't think, you're listening to me today, do you think I'm not fed up? But here's the thing. Read some history. You don't think Lincoln was fed up during the Civil War? You don't think Washington got fed up? You don't think Thomas Paine got fed up? You don't think John Adams got fed up when he was meeting with all the aristocrats in France trying to get them to uh, commit naval troops to the war? You don't think he was fed up when he was meeting with all the people trying to get them to recognize credit for your country? You don't think Thomas Jefferson was fed up when he was trying to get the Declaration of Independence passed and people were poking holes at his work? You don't think James Madison was frustrated with the Constitution and all the things he went through? You don't think your founders are frustrated when it went from 1776 declaring your independence to get to 1787 to the Constitution? You don't think your founders and those who are still around who are frustrated with having to fight another war against England in 1812? You don't think your founders and, and people were frustrated in your country when they were storming the beaches of Normandy? Do you think they were all happy and loving life? Do you think that greatest generation didn't have what you're feeling right now? Or do you think maybe with just a bit of humility, they felt it and a hell of a lot more. But what did they do? They didn't give up. They didn't get angry. They didn't get bitter. What they did was they kept going on. If I may use a a, a slogan, not from America, but from England, keep calm and carry on. That is what your founders did. That is what every generation of Americans has done. I feel your pain. Don't ever think I don't. I feel it. I feel it. And I feel the agony of your pain, but also my own pain. I've not been able to get there. Of having to delay my speaking tour one more time. Of trying to get there for 17 years. Of a country I love, been destroyed, been dismantled, been attacked. And I'm 6,000 miles away and I can do nothing. I feel your frustration. But who, what does frustration solve? Does it make you get better? Does it make you work harder? Or does it understanding that, yes, be frustrated, yes, be angry, yes, be bitter, but move past it. Let it motivate you to fight for a better tomorrow, for yourself, for your kids, for your grandkids. Let us restore what America stands for. Let us restore the idea. Let us reapply our founding principles. And yes, I said our, because I believe they are mine as well. They are God-given. Or we can just consign ourselves to hatred, to anger, to bitterness. But I'll leave you with this. The last people, in case any of that history talk didn't work on you about other founding generations in America. Let's talk to you. You talk about being a Christian nation. Let's talk to you about Jesus. Do you think Jesus wasn't frustrated having to deal with all the chief priests and scribes? Even he was perfect. you think he didn't get frustrated? Oh, here you go again, trying to trip me up. Oh, yeah, okay. 
You think all the people, his disciples who, when Jesus died, when he was crucified, you think they weren't frustrated? What makes you unique? You think you're the first generation that's frustrated? No, you're not. I hate to break it to you. I hate to burst your bubble if you think you are. But the difference between great men in history and great women in history is they got frustrated and they kept fighting. They kept standing. Now is the time to be kind. Now is the time to be humble. Now is the time to be Christ-like. Now is the time to be Martin Luther King-like. Not be angry. Let them not paint us in as angry, as, as hateful. That's what they want. We're not driven by hatred. We're driven by love. We're driven by freedom, not tyranny. This is what solves the problem. The idea of America. I am pleading with you. I am begging. I am imploring. Fill any adjective in there that you want. I am doing it to you. Please, please, please stop with the baloney. Please stop with the bullcrap. Please stop with the politics and focus on what that flag represents. So now we get to calm down, America. We've got our blood pressure all rise up because uh, this week has just been a bad week. I've seen all the left is doing. I've seen about Cuba and we need to set all that straight. But now we need to talk about something else. And one of the things that really annoys me about our world in general is we have stopped having conversations. That, you know, if you have an opinion, like what we're going to talk about, it's my guest at Molly Davis, but criminal justice reform. Anytime you say that to some people, oh, are you turning lefty, John? Are you, you turning soft? No, let's have an honest conversation. As we spoke about in the first segment, there's a lot of problems with government. Your history, Battle of Wounded Knee, Korematsu, Plessy versus Ferguson. Let's all always go from the assumption that government is good and that government is perfect and that we should just always defend it. So let's actually have an honest conversation about criminal justice reform. And you might be uncomfortable, you may agree, you may disagree, but let's actually have an open mind. And with that being said, I'm joined this week by Molly Davis. She's a policy analyst uh, for the Libertas Institute. She talks about cannabis reform. And she's going to talk to us about criminal justice because there's certain things happening around your country that are are very key to that you need to know. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So this is a really, really hard conversation to have with people. Do you find that that's anytime you talk about it, you know, it's it's all you're a lefty or you, you, you don't like the police or you don't like government. It's all, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be one issue that seems to trigger everyone. That you, it puts everyone back into account straight away. Do you find that as it just as a general rule? Oh, absolutely. I mean, with these policy issues that are under kind of the umbrella of criminal justice reform, as soon as you mention one, people have ideas about you and your political ideologies. For example, if you mention we need cannabis reform, all of a sudden you're a lefty stoner who's, you know, supports socialism. (laughs) If you say anything about police accountability, all of a sudden you're, you know, grouped in with a defund police uh, gang and all it, it goes on and on. And so I'm continually labeled as this kind of leftist radical when that couldn't be further from the truth. I really am, um, you know, a free market minded individual. I want free market solutions. I, I'm a capitalist in a lot of ways. And I believe I have, sure, some leftist beliefs, but I align with the right on a lot of things, too. So I wish people <laughs> knew that and stopped painting uh, me with a broad brushstrokes as soon as I start talking about anything remotely related to criminal justice reform. 
Absolutely. Like one of the great things about a market is, you know, not to go off, we want to talk about criminal justice reform. But one of the things I don't think is appreciated is you're the only country that talks about the individual. And, you know, everyone else talks about a collective and can paint with that broad brush. But if you have a, an individualist country, which America is based on the individual of 330 million people, not everyone's going to see things the same way. And that doesn't make you the enemy. You could be 100% wrong, but that doesn't make you the enemy. We should have more debate. And I think this is a really important topic because I want to share some stats with you um, right off the bat. So right now in America, there's roughly give or take, because obviously it changes on a daily and weekly basis, 2.2 million people in jail. To put that into context, the most second most populated country is China with 1.5 million. Now, obviously, you can't put those into context. In per 100,000, America is again top with 737 people. Russia is second with 615 people. Now, right off the bat, that should set off at a siren that kind of goes, we don't really want to be in the, the company of Russia and China, right? This is not a good thing. That's a good basis. Yeah. That's surprising. These are hardly freedom loving countries. Yeah, that statistic, I often start off with that when I'm giving, you know, a, a talk to a group of students or politicians, you know, we are the largest incarcerator in the world, we've become all too comfortable with passing criminal penalties, anytime there's something that makes us uncomfortable. And this is a problem we see on the left, this is a problem we see on the right, and they like to point fingers, but then as soon as something upsets, you know, their base, they go and try to pass a law about it. And the um, the, the status quo is just to enhance penalties and create more penalties. And now we have these convoluted criminal penalty books um, that are so complicated. The average person doesn't even know. <laughs> they, can't, they can't read through it and understand exactly what's illegal and what's not. Absolutely. And like, you know, just like just to break this down, like even again, if you're more on the, you know, let's we need everyone who does think bad things in jail. Let me just give you one stat. So of the 2.2 million people in jail right now, it breaks down to the following. 1.3 million people are in the state, uh, 630 in local, 225,000 in feds. But here's the one stat that should frighten you. And I'd love you to talk about this in general, if you can. 470,000 people in your jail right now are not there because they've done something wrong and are convicted. They're not convicted. That is a really frightening stat. Like, if you think 470,000 people out of 2.2 million, that's like 25%, or just less than 25%. That's a huge number. Why is that? The reason that is is because of our bail system, our traditional cash bail system. So what we've done is we've created a system where if you're arrested and you have access to money, whether that's you personally or just like family and friend ties, then you can pay the given amount, the couple, you know, thousand dollars and get out. But if you don't have access to those kinds of funds, you are tough luck. You're going to be stuck in jail until you can see a judge. And then hopefully you can convince a judge that you can get out and not go and commit another crime and not be a flight risk and come back for your um, for your trial date. So we are one of the only countries in the world who relies on a cash bail system today. And it's, um, you know, it, it really goes back to 
um, our constitution for me that this is so against what our founders wanted. It's, it's against the presumption of innocence and the presumption of freedom when you've been accused for a crime. We're really just warehousing um, people and just basically labeling them as criminals as soon as they're suspected of doing anything. And sometimes there's a good need to hold these people pretrial if they really are a risk, but the burden should be on the government to be able to, to prove that before we hold them indefinitely. Absolutely. I think that is a very big distinction because I see I've had these discussions in private. I'll be honest, you're one of the first people I've had. I've had Hannah Cox on and she's also um, or she's with Fee and I had her on about the death penalty. But I've had these conversations in private and everyone when I say these type of things to people, I always go, so you just want everyone out on bail? No, but there has to be you have to put everything into context. It's not a it's not a, you know, everyone gets bail or no one gets bail. It's a nuanced argument. So like I would make the argument of like the low level crimes, you know, should be, you know, we have to look at all solutions. But also more serious, like if you've gone and raped someone or, you know, done some really serious assault or there I say murder, then you know the bails should be, you know, quite harder to, you know, quite more you're not getting out because you could do it again in real offense. And you, you know, in victims have a right to have their day as well. But what I open to is you know suggestions so you're saying about the cash bail system what other suggest what other alternatives so if you could sort of say well there's one option but these are the other options what are they because i don't see many people talking about them well first off we need to be assessing the risk of the individual based on some more factors than just the crime committed itself we need to look is this person a prior offender is this person have any warrants out for them um, do they have a stable job? Do they have stable income and family ties that, you know, could be an indicator that they're not going to be a flight risk? And then we need to give that judge the information who's who's um, making the decision rather than just giving them the probable cause statement. And then so once the judge is uh, has more access um, to the inf- information about the individual, they can make a better determination. And that might that determination might not be reliance on just a cash um, system. It might not be looking at a spreadsheet and saying, oh, the courts generally recommend X amount of dollars. I'll just do that. It might be um, releasing them with uh, on what's called own recognizance, where the defendant signs a statement and promises to appear. Um, That's more common in many other countries um, in similar status to the U.S. It might be um, an ankle monitor. We have technology now to be able to track where these defendants are going and you know that i wouldn't i wouldn't say that should be the first option but that's something we could use for maybe a little bit higher risk you know not about to commit a crime but maybe there's a little bit of risk of flight you're always kind of taking a gamble um and it might be requiring that they um have a drug test again i think the presumption should be freedom with no restrictions that should be the base starting line But if a judge determines those tools are needed to be able to get this person out, um, especially if they're indigent and they just don't have money to pay the traditional style, then then maybe this is um, another option we could rely on. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, you know, not going getting off topic, but one of the great things I love about America as an outsider is, you know, that you do have a system that's set up that, you you know, you're presumed innocent till, till proven guilty and your founders fought for that because of what they went through under the, you know, when they were, you know, before they declared their independence. And this, this amazing thing is we seem to have the Rubicon seems to have shifted. You know, if you, if you could put, you know, 10, um, innocent people away and make sure everyone else was, you know, all the guilty people are away, would you be okay with that? Or would you rather one bad person get away and, you know, all the the good people go? And I think it's a really Mm -hmm. bad thing. 
I think it should be a case of the presumption on the government side is you're innocent. And then it's up to the government to say, no, here's this, here are the facts. And sometimes it's clear cut. You assaulted someone, you beat someone up, you, you raped someone, this is the evidence, you know, you put it forward. But then you have a right to your fair trial and you also have a right to present your defence. And I think that is absolutely critical. And I, I hope that you never get away from that or hope you start going back the other way. Yes, absolutely. I think you're you're spot on when you say it's you know it's kind of similar to the trolley problem. It's but here in the here in America we value freedom, we value the constitution and I think the presumption of innocence and the presumption of freedom should be the baseline. It should not be the other way around, but we've created a system where it is the other way around and unless you have enough money to pay your bail schedule to get out um, then you're going to be tough luck. You're going to be incarcerated and stuck behind bars and your trial might not happen for weeks or even months sometimes, especially with like the court delays that have been happening with COVID. And so that's really an injustice. And that's really, um, you know, opposed to what the word justice is in our criminal system. I often, when referring to policies like this, just call it the criminal system because there is no justice in that. It should not be purely based off of wealth. Absolutely. And like the one thing I would say is if anyone right now who's skeptical is going, oh, I don't know about this. Just think of where your world is going right now, where you have all these mandates and you must conform and we're going to knock door to door to make sure you're vaccinated. You know, that it mightn't happen now, but think of what's going to be like in five years' time. You might want the justice system working for you. Hopefully you never have to use it, but you want a system where, you know what, you've been accused in the wrong. You have a system that says, okay, I've been accused, but you know what, I'm innocent. And to, to have that opportunity, that, you know, the, the Fifth Amendment, you have a right to a speedy trial, you have a right to present a defense, you have a right to a jury of your peers. These are all absolutely critical. But moving on to the actual figures when and getting closer to what you wanted to talk about on, in your great article on Arizona was the big problem that you see if you look at the, the stats for year on year in arrests in, in America is a large chunk of them are based around drugs. And if you look at it, since 1994, there's been averaging over a million arrests in your country every year. And that, it's more than that because that's just the average. But in, if you put that into context, in the last figure I could get figures for in complete year was 2018. 1.2 million of those arrests were made on possession alone. And only 200,000 were based on sale. So you're talk, it's very highly lopsided. You're talking for every seven arrests, six of them are for possession. Now, here's the problem. Should people who have possession of a drug be in jail? Well, it's a nuanced answer. I think personally, okay. I think no, I think it's a if it's a victimless crime, I think there's good argument and not just with drugs, but with other things like, for example, in California, there was big talk about straws and whether straws should be a criminal offense like we've got to bring it back to these are the things that are the american people are now making into crime so like while drugs might be a triggering word there are going to be other laws passed in the future where victimless crimes and if the um if we're constantly relying on incarceration as a a method of, of our primary penalty then we uh we have a problem there and so yeah i it's it's easy to really get triggered as soon as you hear the word drugs because all of these assumptions and stereotypes come to mind but i mean um i think most of these people if it's victimless and it's just possession should not be uh should not be incarcerated there's no reason for them to be uh you know behind bars and um defunct of any liberty during that uh penalty 
I, I absolutely agree. I'm not a big drug guy, so I'm, I'm drug clean. I don't do it. I never will. I'm a competitive powerlifter, so if I ever do it, I'm, I'm disqualified automatically for life. So I'm not doing it, um, and I've never seen the appeal of it. But the idea of liberty is bigger than what you see as a personal right. And I always, this is the one frustrating when I use drugs, because it is a triggering word, because you always go, oh, what are you defending all those hippies and, you know, all these potheads and stuff, and oh, do we need all these people? I always go, well, if you believe in limited government and you believe in the founding principles of America and the idea which we promote on the show week in, week out, you understand the role of government is to protect your rights. If you make the exception for drugs, being well, drugs are, the, are my line in the sand, you shouldn't have them, they're bad to society, you have all this evidence that says so, okay, then that means you're saying government has to be a nanny. Why should you stop the drugs and not anything else? And I always use, because I'm a bigger guy, if I decide it's really cool to have 10 big mats a day, and that's healthy, and I'm going to do it day in and day out, Everyone knows I'm going to die. It's not a question of, well, John might be totally healthy. He might look like crap eating 10 Big Macs. But do I have a right? Does the government have a right to stop me? What would you say? Well, I mean, I just think it's funny that conservatives are often the ones really like up in arms about the drug conversation because, um, you know, it's like, oh, all of a sudden you trust the FDA and you trust the federal government and like state laws to be, um, you know, the nanny and like what drugs are uh, a lot we're allowed to put in our bodies and which drugs are banned. Like suddenly government knows best and suddenly you want to arrest and incarcerate all of these other people because somehow, you know, um, uh, legal meth, Adderall, is better than illegal meth on the streets. And of course, you know, in, <laughs> when we're talking about like safety of consumptions, there are there is truth to that statement. But um, I know plenty put of an FDA label on your sticker. Only have one joint today. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I know plenty of people in college who, like, were pretty reliant on Adderall that they got from a doctor's office and that they had a prescription. But they have a legal stamp, so they can't be incarcerated, and they're somehow better and, like, more well-off than the person, you know, finding this stuff on the street or, um, you know, sell or buying it from a, a friend who has a prescription. Uh, so that is always a little bit funny to me when conservatives, like, want to rely sometimes on the federal government, but sometimes in the case of COVID, like, they are very critical of the federal government's knowledge, and they're, so what do you, either way, you, you want it if you want to, um, an individualistic perspective and you want to be able to have the right to govern your own body and some of those, um, I guess, core principles that conservatives often believe in, then it has to go um, both ways. And that's why I think small L libertarian philosophy is often like, you know, more consistent and better with these types of arguments. But Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not pure enough to be a libertarian and I'm too libertarian to be a libertarian. <laughs> None of us so, are. I, yeah, I know. It's the amazing thing. It's like I want to meet a pure libertarian one day because I, I would love to have a conversation. I'd actually love to have them on the show because I would love to know what they exist and what they look like because they must be amazing. <laughs> but now let's start trying to focus in the area because one of the things I try and do is I don't have all the answers, but I love talking to people about ideas. But I also... Because I do a show every week and I have to try and go, okay, how do I make the argument? I can't just get on and go, oh, you're stupid. You don't have this opinion. We have to make the argument. And I think one of the things that criminal justice reform um, can sort of appeal to right-wing people is if we base it in finances. Um, just the numbers. Now, I know these numbers sound small when you're talking about 1.9 trillion bailouts and, you know, all these housing plans and different plans that you have. But the cost every year is for prison system is $3 billion at the federal level and over $7 billion at the state level. 
So we're talking about 10 billion. Now, I know that doesn't seem like much in the 1.9 trillion bailouts and COVID bills and all the bills and the printing money, but $10 billion is a lot of money. How about we just have ideas and say, hey, should we say, if we could save 1 billion of that, should we be open to it? As fiscal conservatives, you should be open to this, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, a big argument that I think some conservative lawmakers have started to recognize. And that's why you're starting to see champions of criminal justice reform on the right. I think traditionally we have thought of it as kind of a lefty issue because people very much framed it as, oh, you know, they just want to be able to run reckless without laws and get people out of jail and prison. Whereas now it's like, oh, no, there's actually legitimate data backed solutions rather than relying on traditional forms of penalties such as incarceration that work and are saving taxpayers dollars. Because at the end of the day, it's really, really expensive to house people and keep them and pay for their medical needs and all of their legal documentation and their food and bedding when you have someone um, behind bars. So, of course, that's just like one area of the criminal justice system. But um, you know, that's one reason why we have seen many states in the past five to 10 years start to rely more and more on community supervision programs as an alternative to jail and prison, which is where um, pro- probation and parole come in. an article recently for um uh, about arizona so arizona is taking on this mantra of you know let's let's look outside the box let's just say you know let's not just have the opinion hey this is what we do and let's just throw away the key let's just you know forget about it everything's perfect let's actually have a discussion about some ideas why don't you tell me about what they're what they're proposing in arizona right now yeah, so um, a conservative lawmaker um, in Arizona, Representative Steve Kaiser, took on this issue of trying to ensure that our community supervision programs in Arizona really work for the people um, in terms of safety, but also work for the taxpayers. And it's forward looking in both of those ways. And so he um, he's trying to make these systems work. And what he's doing, he sponsored um, House Bill 2707. And what this bill does is it uses uh, financial incentives to incentivize probation officers and probation um, offices to uh, get better success rates with less recidivism among um, among clients. Um, that's the, that's the high level. We can get more into how exactly they're going to make it happen. But you know, he he based this idea. I think I, I'm assuming he's more of a free market minded um, individual as a conservative. And he based it in the understanding that incentives matter. Um, he knows that, you know, this is how things get done in a capitalist society like ours. And like why we're so successful as Americans in the business world is because um, of, you know, incentives is a big part of it. So the principle of incentives and using financial incentives to um, to get people to act, uh, it's applied oftentimes in the private market. So why not take the same working principle and use it in the public safety sector? And that's what he's doing. He um, One of the areas of the policies that tells probation officers that they will be financially compensated 
for the amount of clients that they keep out of incarceration um, and safely on the streets within the program in compliance with the program. Um, And so now the probation officer, they're in a position where they, you know, they get money, they're rewarded for for their good work. And so they're going to want to go out and make sure that everyone they're overseeing stays on track and stays safe, doesn't commit new crimes, shows up to their meetings, and they're going to go the extra mile to really make it work for their clients rather than just, oh, if they fail, back to jail, nothing on me, I'm going to keep doing my job. And so um, it's a huge shift. And it's a really innovative policy that um, I'm really excited for Arizona to, to implement. So what are the things that they can do? Let's talk, you know, brass tacks on the ground. So you're a probation officer, you're over, I don't know, 20, 50 people, you know, or however many it is. What can you do to, how can you get involved or what will this law do that gives you the power to do, to make you, you know, make people commit less crime? I think the power was already in their hands, but they had no incentive. Um, You know, maybe you really care as a probation officer, you really care about the results of your clients and, you're going to do everything you can already to keep them out of jail. But they, like I said, it doesn't really like matter or reflect on you to a large degree one way or another under the current system, whether your client ends up in jail or stays out. And so now they're like, oh, you can get money for this. And it, <laughs> of course, I'm going to try to do a better job. You know, like there's a raise for me at the end, of course. And so I think it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be different, like depending on the type of clients and like the demographics. But I think it could mean, um, you know, being more flexible with how and where you meet these defendants, um, checking in more, uh, making sure that they that the defendant is uh, connected with with the community resources that they need to be successful so they can be like a contributing member of society and get a job and be you know, financially independent. Um, And so those kinds of things that I think these defendants could really like utilize the system for that maybe might not have been happening 100% um, before. I think now we're going to see that it's going to start happening. Um, And I'm excited for that. I think that this is a win-win, not only for the individuals within probation, but the probation officers um, themselves, you know, that's, they were uh, generally supportive of it in Arizona and for good reason. And has this been in, enacted in any other states? And as it has, what have been the results? Yeah, so it's been enacted um, similar legislation in California um, and in Texas. And both have seen um, pretty good results so far. And both, you know, they they had the the um, the same reasoning for passing. Uh, these are states that have actually a much larger probation population than Arizona. And just to like give you um, a number there, Arizona has a monthly average of 82,911 adults on probation. So that's quite a lot for Arizona. You can imagine what the numbers are in much larger states like California and Texas. And so, um, you know, they to some degree care about, I say to some degree, because we're putting California in here, but care about what (laughs) saving taxpayer dollars. And then, you know, more importantly, perhaps for both, just making sure that their systems in place are actually working. Um, I know this is 
this is hard to believe with a state like California that they care about a government program working. But well, you're a lefty, so you know about what California wants. Oh right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then moving on just to justice reform, because one of the things I know, and I know that's not from a from a crime point of view, but from a um, I used to be in charity, and I used to be the president and tra- national trainer for charity over here. And I, I got to see poverty firsthand. And one of the things about this is poverty and crime go hand in hand. And you have to break the cycle because, you know, people will follow in the footsteps. If, if all they see is, well, this is how the thing is done or you and it's not just crime. It's like, you know, this is how you get money. This is how you gain the system. This is how you, you know, you live your life. You're never going to break that cycle. You know, I've seen it firsthand where, you know, I was helping families who we'd help their mother. We'd help their granny. We'd help their great granny. And it's just it's just part of the cycle. They, they grew up thinking, well, this charity, when we get stuff, we call them and they give us money. And it's trying to break that kind of go, no, you can be independent. You have a, you know, you can be self-sufficient getting there. How do we get into these environments, you know, try and, you know, break down before you get into promote probation um, or into the system where we can actually sort of get criminal justice reform back before there's actually a crime committed and make these areas better? Is that something that you're seeing um, much demand for or even a debate around in your circles? Or is it just, you know, when the crime is committed, let's try and get down there? No, I think that's the million dollar question. Um, I think depending who you ask, everyone's going to have a different answer. Like conservatives would say that one of the best um, ways to keep people out of a life of crime is to provide them with good opportunities to be able to have upward mobility. You know, the traditional American dream argument, um, which has, you know, worked for a lot of people like we see less poverty rates. Um, in the world today than ever before. I mean, now we're just becoming aware of what poverty looks like. Despite what the, you know, if you hear the left talk, you'd swear it was worse than all time, but you see the numbers, it's in, they've even changed the metric. It's no longer, I know know it's hitting still, but it's no longer a dollar a day, it's $2 a day. That shows you how much we've improved in 40 years. We've still got a long way to go. Oh yeah, so that's gonna be a huge part of it. And like you said, we've got a long way to go. Um, but, and then I think that uh, if you ask like some people who lean more to the left, their answer is going to be, well, you know, like government programs and they, I think they want to get to the same ends of people being able to afford like a good lifestyle, but they want government to be the ones to intervene and do it. And so like, that's like a very, uh, broad level answer. Um, I guess, uh, if we're getting more policy oriented on things that we could be doing now, um, it's, it's, it, it is really, we have to be forward looking, we have to change the structures. And part of it for me, um, the obvious answer is uh, taking away some of these laws, just abolishing some of these laws that shouldn't be, shouldn't have criminal penalties in the first place. Um, like I said, we've become so comfortable with creating laws for every issue here and there and attaching these high level criminal penalties. We need to get out of that mindset and realize that criminal punishments are um, not the way to go with everything we want to make illegal. Um, like, for example, I think there's good arguments to be made that um, traffic enforcement shouldn't be criminal. Like that shouldn't be a part of the criminal penalty books. Like maybe we should make everything civil. So keep those people out of the criminal system. So make sure that, you know, they're not getting (laughs) wrapped up in the criminal courts and have potential jail time attached if they don't pay their fines and fees, for example. Um, There's, yeah, there's so many areas. I brought up the example of like 
the straws in California and how like radical leftists wanted to make them illegal. And there was like the story of a server there who was given, giving her table plastic straws and she was facing threat of prosecution and conviction, which is ridiculous, but it's such a good example because the more that the more time that passes, I think, um, you know, different trendy issues are going to become part of the news cycle. People are going to get amped up about it and then pass criminal laws. If we if we can stop that from happening and actually go back and remove some of the criminal penalties, such as in traffic enforcement, then keeping people out of the system in the first place is like a, a big way to, I think, um, impact how we move forward. Absolutely. And like the, I think the big thing as well is, is just to re-emphasize to anyone who's listening who, you know, was maybe a bit skeptical everywhere. We're not saying like all these dangerous people like, you know, who've done really serious crimes don't belong in the system. But like it's a case of does everyone belong in the system? And I think it's, it's just really important to emphasize that point that there is a distinction of, you know, levels of crimes. Like you have felonies, you know, class A, class B, class C. What we're effectively saying is that it's similar. It's kind of going, look, yeah, there has to be a justice system. But, you know, that's not ever put, you know, jail is not always the answer for especially low level crimes. And, you know, the idea of, you know, possession of drugs has been, you know, literally potentially ruining your life. Because if you get if you carry enough of a drug, you get a big record on your system. Then it empl- affects your employment chances. It affects your employment chances just because a cycle you can't get a job then how do you put food on the table then all of a sudden you know everyone finds out well he isn't working or she isn't working oh well then you know what come run for me you know I'll, you know then all of a sudden you've got you know possession into you know selling and distributing then all of a sudden it becomes a much bigger crime you get arrested and then you're in jail for a lot longer and then you get out then all of a sudden you're a lot older you know you're even bigger of a felon no career opportunities you're too old you haven't got the skills you've got a criminal record what's the rest of your life okay well crime you know, so we have to break that cycle and have that conversation of how do we change that cycle and kind of break it so that, you know, you don't have that situation happening. And also, I would add to that, that even for serious criminals that do deserve to have uh, prison time attached to their sentence, it's like most of those people inevitably are going to be released from prison someday. So another big question to ask here is what are we doing while we have them behind bars in a state facility to make sure that they are going to actually go on and lead a better life once they're outside? So in order to, um, you know, change their, their future, I think we have to stop thinking about punish, 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 and start thinking of how do we rehabilitate? Punishment is that they're being isolated. Their freedom is completely taken away. Like we don't need to make conditions like squalor for these prisoners because how are they going to reacclimate? How are they going to be social? How are they going to live on their own? Um, You know, like we expect them to once they're out in free society. Like we need to start talking about what training can we allow them um, to do behind bars? How can we incentivize them to be better people once they are out um, you know, released. And these are the kinds of questions we have to be asking. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to invest in it because they view them kind of as like the scum of the earth, but um, they're people, they're coming back out someday. So let's make sure that they aren't set up for a life of crime, but rather one of opportunity, prosperity. Absolutely. And just to share a little story of a conversation I had this week. So um, I've been, I, I was very sick last week. So I was watching a bit of te- television with my mother and we were on Amazon over here and we came across this series. Um, I'm sure you've heard of him, Gordon Ramsay, he's a chef. 
And mm-hmm. it twel- in t- 2012, he did this series, which I, I'd never heard of. And I was I only watched it like last week. And it was basically where he was like, uh, England has all these prisoners. And, you know, to break the cycle, what we're going to do is I'm going to go in and I'm going to spend six months in there on and off, do this documentary of me behind bars. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach them how to cook. And basically what he did was he set up this uh, bakery called Bad Boys Bakery. And they did this lemon slice and then they sold it in a coffee chain to basically get them working, to get them a skill, to get them the responsibility. They could say they worked in this bakery, you know, when they got out to try and get a job. But then also to try and help the system because they committed some bad crimes to pay to help the taxpayer. And I was like, this is a really good idea. You know, I, I remember, you know, the historical story. If you remember America, prisons used to used to always make the, na- the, the number plates. I don't know if you still do that. So I, I'm always fascinated. I spoke to a friend on my left about criminal justice reform because I knew I was going to have you on. And I started talking. So, oh, yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. And, you know, that's great. You know, we need to get less people out of prisons. The minute I shared that story, oh, I never. I, see, that's where you're a right winger. This is slave labor. And just totally went into this camp of this is morally and wrong and how could you stand for such a thing? And I thought you were making progress. And I kind of go, but the benefits that they have, oh, no, we can't have that. That's wrong. And they only work for, you know, they do it over here and they only earn 38 cents a day. And that's really bad. And I, I was like, but the benefits, they get to say they've worked. No, it's just you, you're a slaveholder. And this is this is the modern day slavery. And this is like the you, you should belong in the Ku Klux Klan. I'm kind of going. I'm talking to you about, I, we agreed for like 70% of the conversation, you know, are open mm-hmm. to having that discussion. That minute that came up, bam, conversation closed. How do we have these conversations? That's I know tough. it's a million dollar yeah, question, that's, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's tough. I've run into, you know, similar, similar arguments with people myself. And I, I really like that program. To me, it speaks to providing opportunities. Um, and, you know, the payment issue, if that's what you disagree on, um, man, I still think it's better than the status quo. I guess that's what I, that's my message. Um, you know, like, we, if you work in politics, you know that, of course, you strive for, for, for perfection, but oftentimes you're going to have to compromise. You're going to have to come to agreements with the other side to make sure at least progress is had in some way. Um, and so it's frustrating, but it's kind of part of it. And so um, like part of the First Step Act was making sure, which is a, a federal legislation that was passed under and signed under President Trump. And it only applied to federal prisons, which is actually a very uh, minor amount of our um, nation's incarcerated population. But it still set like a good precedent for the rest of um, the states and their incarcerated um, population. And, and what it one of the things it does is it says that um, it, it sets up incentives for uh, for prisoners if they complete certain you know job and skills training then they can earn these earned time credits and actually earn their way out of prison quicker. Um, So that's what they're, that's what they're getting in exchange. So I can see maybe your leftist friend, like arguing that they should be also be getting paid for that in the meantime or, but uh, you know, they're the benefit is right there in front of you. And like, it's the same thing reason why we have internships, for example, like that really what you're getting out of it is the ability to put something on your resume, new skills, connections, you know, there's, of course, a debate on the left and the right, and whether they should be paid to but like, I still yeah. think it's, it's, if you're willing to, you know, engage in this um, uh, free exchange by your own free will, then um, I guess more power to you. 
Absolutely. And like the one thing about that show, which I found amazing, obviously it's, you know, it is staged for cameras. Like it's not a hundred percent real. It is, you know, produced, but you know, all of the prisoners who you see all these criminals, you kind of, they all had a sense of pride of what they were doing and you could see it in their work. And like all of a sudden to kind of go, well, all I've known is crime. And all of a sudden I'm creating this lovely tart that people are willing to pay money for. That's, you know, I don't care where you come from. That, that should be, you know, that would make anyone proud of themselves kind of going, well, you know what? I might be able to do anything, but I can make it. I can make a lemon treacle tart. And that is, you know, that will give you a bit of confidence. Then all of a sudden, maybe you can do something else. Maybe you make an apple pie or maybe you make a beef wellington or maybe you make, I don't know, something else. But Or you may go in a whole different field, but that you can do something, a sense of accomplishment. We really need that in, in today's society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know what uh, um, what all of those things you mentioned are. But right, yeah. okay. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, loads of English dishes, but yeah, it's it's just different things. Well, you know apple pie. You have to. You're an American. I don't know apple pie. The second one, the beef Wellington. I don't know. What yeah. That is. Oh, you've never had beef Wellington? Oh, no, but now I, I want to try it. It's a it's a lump of beef um, wrapped in mushrooms, wrapped in uh, Parma ham, wrapped in pastry. Oh, wow! It's okay. not good for your waist. It's not good for different things. But damn, is it tasty! So maybe uh, after the summer bikini season is over, it sounds like yeah. a winter treat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. when you can wear something loose like a hoodie, um, absolutely. I highly recommend it. We're not a cookie <laughs> show, though. <laughs> um, so but yeah, having the opportunity, that sense of pride, it's got it's so important. And like like getting back to the point that a lot of these prisoners are going to be transitioning out into society, having something to be proud of, just for your mental psyche and your um you know ability to be able to live with yourself like having a pool of successes is really important as um you know as we know especially in a society that values um that values a resume and that values successes so much awesome so where can people find out if they're kind of listening to us talking and kind of you know i want to do more research what type of places would you recommend that they go and try and learn more and you know get some good opinions on either side well, I know of our website is libertas.org. Um, I also, for criminal justice, I would say check out, uh, so we're Libertas Institute, but also check out our street institute, um, check out Institute for Justice. They do a lot of great work. Um, those are some that come to mind. Cicero Institute is another new big think tank um, that's working on this stuff. And Cato Institute, those are all kind of my go-tos when it comes to criminal justice policy experts. And what does, why don't you tell people what Libertas does? Yeah, Libertas or Libertas Institute. We are a 501c3 nonprofit based in Utah. Um, we work on the state level, impacting change um, on a number of different issues. So, my expertise is in criminal justice. We work on private property, we work on innovation, business and tech, um, education, and a few other issues. We're really active in the, um, the policy space here. And um, we're always looking, like I did with this Arizona paper, to states surrounding us, to seeing what's happening, what's working, and how can we implement change on the home front. Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Twitter? Twitter. Yes. My Twitter yeah. is kind of, um, it's kind of a long name, but it's underscore Molly underscore Davis underscore. <laughs> well, we'll link to it in the show. 
Listen, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. America, we finish up the way we do each and every week by saluting you, the American people. Never, ever forget the sentiments of Stokeville. America is great because Americans are good. You're not great because of Trump or Biden or Harris or left or right or Democrats or Republicans. You're great because of each and every one of you. And the flag means something, as we discussed in the second segment about Cuba. Honor it, respect it, and understand the values your founders fall for. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network.